Welcome to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. My name is Theo Finnegan, and I'm here with Professor Terry Doughty of the VIU English Department to talk about her upcoming presentation in the VIU Arts and Humanities Colloquium series entitled Making Kin with Plants, the Picture Books of Elsa Besco. She's going to be delivering this presentation on September 25th at 10 a.m. Both uh, as I understand it, in the Malaspina Theatre for a limited socially distanced audience and online as well. Welcome, Terry. Thank you, Theo. It's good to be here with you. It's nice to see you. So your talk is about 20th century Swedish um, author and illustrator Elsa Besko. Can you tell us a bit about who she was and, and what she did? Elsa Besko was a artist Initially, uh, she trained at an art school and was somewhat influenced by what some people will recognize as Art Nouveau styles called National Romanticism in Sweden. And she um, met and married a fellow artist who uh, her, ma her maiden name was uh, Elsa Martman and she married Nathanael uh, Besko. He was a minister. Um, and as this is in the late 19th century, and as was common for women at the time, uh, he had a study for doing all of his work, and she kind of worked wherever she could find space. <laughs> um, they're an interesting couple. They moved in progressive circles. Um, she was very influenced uh, by uh, Ellen Key, uh, involved in reform pedagogy. And so Besco uh, kind of combined all of these influences. In her earliest work, she illustrated work for other people. And there were a lot of nature illustrations, stylized uh, drawings of, of plants and butterflies and such. Uh, but she started to write and illustrate her own books. And in her books, you can kind of see that, that influence of progressive educational values her books that are published mostly in the early 20th century um, feature very capable children. You know, her, her children um, can go out in the world, they do things, um, they do not require supervision, um, they have practical skills. And she also writes most of her books with a strong focus on children in the natural world. She's very much affiliated with uh, the development of the Swedish national identity because she also wrote a lot of uh, school books uh, and illustrated school books. She, I think, is a, a key figure in the development of Swedish identity, particularly related to um, the notion that uh, a good life is one that's lived in and close to nature. How did you first um, sort of encounter her or come across her in, in, your, in your research? Well, <laughs> it wasn't research. Oh, really? <laughs> um, I, I actually had uh, been invited to go to Stockholm University uh, to uh, do some presentations about VIU and to do a presentation of some work I was doing on wolves in children's picture book. That's a whole other topic. Actually, as I was leaving Stockholm, it was a very quick visit, 
I was in the airport and I saw all of this china and I was confused because I thought it was work by an, an English illustrator I knew. Um, and uh, I looked more closely and realized it wasn't. So I became intrigued by Basco uh, because uh, she it was... Uh, these these all kind of were very charming, kind of whimsical illustrations of, of plant people. Mm-hmm. I know that there are the famous kind of English flower fairies. Um, there are illustrators from Australia in the same period doing flower fairies or plant people as well. And at first I was kind of interested in this as a kind of international moment. Um, and then I began to find that her work was uh, a bit different Uh, her work seemed much more relational. She seemed much more concerned not only to show plants existing in in communities and and having relationships, but also in showing human children having relationships with plant people. How would you describe your relationship with plants? So sort of maybe outside of this presentation outside of research, what, what, do you, what do you consider to be your relationship with, with plants? I think it's changing as a result of doing this work, to be honest. Um, I, I came, as I was doing research on this topic, I came across the idea of plant blindness, that you know most of us are not aware of plants at all. And I probably kind of fell into that, you know, I like to eat certain things. I like to eat fruits and vegetables. And, and uh, you know, I've always kind of liked to do a, a bit of gardening. And uh, I always have my, you know, my flower pots in the summer, you know, but I but I have, you know, never really thought about plants as, uh, as a species that could have something in common with humans. And I have been finding with some of my reading, uh, and I'm certainly not a plant, you know, biologist, um, but I am, you know, learning a lot about plants and, and realizing that they're way more complex and deserve a lot more respect. That idea of plant blindness, it makes sense in, in terms of the way that we, in, in Western culture anyway, tend to be socialized to see plants as like the background. Yeah, um, yeah. Like as I look out my window here, there's a bunch of trees, a nice wall of green trees behind our house, and it's just sort of literally the background to our lives. It sort of leads to my next question, which is why, why is it important maybe for us to, to try to shift our understanding to maybe a more kinship or relational um, thing with plants? You know, when we talk about species, the focus is often on animals. And, I, and there's actually even been research about, you know, the, the cuteness factor, right? Yeah. Like, why do, why do uh, <laughs> some people like the cute, you know, the cute animals, you can kind of, you know, get a good campaign going to rescue, but, you know, who wants to, yes. you know, to rescue a hyena or something? <laughs> um, you know, but I mean, plants don't even get on the radar there. And yet, if you really stop and think about it, um, you know, we, we, probably could live without a lot of animals. Um, Our lives would be much poorer for it. Um, But could we live without plants? Yeah. Like if we had no plants at all. Um, And so I really think it's important for human beings to develop a self-awareness that we have a connection with plants um, and ideally one that's not just exploitive. Yeah, I was going to say, so it's not just sort of, I mean, there is obviously instrumental or practical uses for plants, you know, that help produce oxygen, 
or stop erosion or whatever. But but it seems to me that the the import of what your talk is going to be about is that it's not just that we can use them for things, but that there's a sort of something deeper than that or something a bit more um, something that sort of destabilizes our, our sense of our own importance a little bit as well in in a lot of environmental humanities work uh, one term that's used is to talk about other species is more if not non-human but more than human Mm. Uh, and I think the goal is to try to get us to, to, again, you know, get out of our own heads, get out of that kind of, you know, great chain of being thinking where we, we see ourselves as as the, the pinnacle of life forms on earth um, and, and recognize that, you know, we need to uh, respect other beings as being equal to ourselves in value. When you talked about the cuteness factor, it reminded me of a... Of a something that happened to me a couple of years ago where we had a really snowy winter in Nanaimo. Mm, yeah. Uh, at, at our old place, me and my, my partner's old place, we'd get a lot of snails in, in the front yard. Right. Uh, and one time we saw a snail hanging out and it was it was a blizzard and we, we took it inside. And I mean, it seems really strange actually looking back on it, but we kind of looked after it for a while. And then mm. whether turned nice again we released it in bowen park <laughs> um so and it, and it did feel uh, it's i mean obviously they're, they're not cute in the same way that a that a that a cat like my cat's just meowing is um yep. but it was it it felt like it was a kind of companion for a while and then mm -hmm. we took it back outside yeah and i actually think we can learn a lot from from children in this you know it, it this is kind of getting away from plants a bit but you know there is this kind of really interesting sort of disgust factor that that starts to occur um i've never kind of researched the the whys and wherefores of it but you know i i think of myself as a child i watched my son as a child um and just kind of muck in and and you know be you know touch everything um be curious about everything um, and then later you know snakes become creepy mm. frog spawn is gross you know you get all of those um, you know it's that change and, and it's funny with my daughter who's 18 months old I, I'm quite arachnophobic um, but yeah. with her when we see a spider I'm kind of trying to repress <laughs> my yeah. own things and we just kind of treat it like a thing to notice um, and she's she's quite quite sort of fond of seeing them and now mm -hmm. wants to talk about them and so I'm, I'm quite happy that we're, we're starting her off in that with plants i mean there's a kind of you know can be you know some more more visually or you know more aesthetically pleasing than others um but i think it's really interesting too that we kind of categorize them um and again it's sort of based on their utility to us um and so one of the books i'm going to talk about which translates in english to the flowers festival um has uh, a, a young girl on midsummer evening um, encountering a whole plant community um, and the plant community is hierarchical and uh, built um, across a kind of um, you know horizontal axis in families as well um, but there's one kind of group that initially are are outcasts and that's the weeds mm. <laughs> mm. Um, and you know so it's kind of a very clear sort of class you know issue um but what the the text really does is 
present the weeds quite sympathetically. The leader of the the flower kingdom, uh, you know, agrees mm. that they you know deserve to be present at the festivities, okay. um, you know, and 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 you know even although many of the other plants find the weeds very disruptive, um, you know, there's something kind of triumphal in their disruption and their kind of rude health. <laughs> Hi, my name is Catherine, and I teach in the History Department at Vancouver Island University. You're listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities on CHLY 101.7 FM, Nanaimo. You teach and research. One of your areas is children's literature, and and this is uh, your talks sort of tied to that as well. I'm curious about what Led you to that field? Um, how did you get into uh, looking at children's literature? I trained as a Victorianist, actually. And, you know, when I started here, I, of course, like everyone, taught, you know, all of the introductory courses and the professional writing courses, but I was hired as a Victorianist. Mm-hmm. And um, after I had been here for a few years, the, the two uh, people who had been teaching the children's literature courses, which were always very popular, uh, went on leaves at the same time. And my department chair at the time said to me, well, you're a Victorianist. You can teach children's literature. Away you go. Uh, I never really thought about the the logic there. (laughs) I think it might have been to do with, uh, I guess, so many of the classics, you know, the golden age of children literature and the late Victorian, you know, Edwardian period. Mm -hmm. But I found I did really enjoy teaching those classes. And I was a little bit less comfortable teaching contemporary children's literature. At that time, I didn't have a child. um, And... uh, I did not have a kind of, you know, regular means of being around children and their culture. Um, And I didn't really kind of know a lot about contemporary children's books. But um, as a kind of form of PD, I got involved in the Vancouver Island Children's Book Festival, which you may or may not have heard of. I believe it's still going. It was one of the kind of longest running grassroots children's book festivals in, in Canada. Um, so, as part of this book festival, um, the committee brought usually 12 to 14 Canadian authors and illustrators to Nanaimo, mm. and we had one kind of great big sort of conference for kids. They could sign up and see, you know, three in a day, the rather kind of fun activities. Um, and then we also did uh, school visits library readings and one of the things you could volunteer to do was to uh, drive authors on some of these visits so doing that for about 14 years gave me a lot of exposure uh, and a lot more confidence i met a lot of local teachers and librarians and benefited from their knowledge as well Um, and uh, i i found Uh, myself becoming increasingly interested, particularly in the relationship between word and image, and and started doing more work with picture books. One thing I found as being a relatively new parent is is how uh, tactile books are often designed that way. Um, We have several books in our house that are sort of, that that have sort of three-dimensional aspects where my daughter can feel a pattern or touch touch a sort of shape or something as part of the book. But it's also interesting the extent to which she has treated them as objects. 
to play mm-hmm. with as well as things to, and she's sort of learning now to, to, to quote unquote read or look at them, but mm-hmm. for quite a while they were sort of things as well as, um, as well as books, I suppose. And I don't know, it's been really cool to kind of, uh, as someone who, you know, studies literature and, and text myself to kind of start thinking about text in a slightly different way. And, um, and I immersed myself in a bunch of children's books, which I hadn't read for, you know, 40 years or whatever. <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah, it's been, it's been really fascinating. Do you, do you think it's important, I mean, obviously as parents to, to, to read children's literature, but I guess my question is why, why is children's literature important, not just for children, let's say? I think like any aspect of, of children's culture, it's kind of a, a lightning rod for where the broader culture is at, right? Um, so, uh, you know, we have so much invested in um, raising our children to, you know, share beliefs, values, cultural practices, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, children's literature is is the place where that you know gets done um or where that gets subverted there's a really delightful kind of subversive element to a lot of great children's literature as well i mean you you just think back to alice in wonderland you know alice you know is is uh you know learning in wonderland that all the proper rules that she's been taught are useless Mm -hmm. um you know and and the book culminates in, you know, the Wonderland part culminates with her just standing up and saying, you're all a pack of cards, right? <laughs> I don't have to listen to any of you. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that, that reading children's literature is a way of really um, identifying some of the, the values that are really, you know, core in a culture, uh, because these are the things that, that uh, you know, are getting... Um, you know, picked to be shared with children. I mean, in children's literature, it's heavily curated, right? I mean, children don't write their own literature. <laughs> and and, uh, and it's, you know, curated. So, you know, if you, you know, are publishing a children's book, um, you know, it's not just kind of a pure thing from you to the child, right? It, it, there's so many people in the publishing process involved, including the marketing department. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many children's book authors I've met who've hated the cover of their book, for example. Really? <laughs> yeah. and, and also that it, it's... Um, you know, in some ways, the most powerful ideology, let's say, is that which is sort of like taking a second nature, and you don't think of as ideology. And, and I, and, and you look at a, a child, a really young child, encountering books, um, and and sort of almost subsuming them, or, or or having having the content and the form, I suppose, enter into them without their full understanding of it. They're learning stuff on this quite deep level, I think, in, in early encounters with books. I would totally agree. I think we really tend to, you know, underestimate um, children and their capacity to comprehend. They may not have a sophisticated vocabulary to articulate concepts, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't um, mean that they're not having particular experiences and and feelings. There's some awfully sophisticated children's books Mm -hmm. out there.
Do you have a favorite? I mean, it's always hard to pick, right? But if do you have a favorite children's author or? I have a lot of people I yeah. like. <laughs> um, you know, for staying with the idea of, of picture books, um, I really enjoy the work of Anthony Brown. Um, his book, Voices in the Park, is a brilliant revisiting of one of his earlier books. And it is the same afternoon in the park with four different um, characters, uh, a gorilla, an upper class, a middle class gorilla mother and her um uh, smothered son, um, a working class gorilla father who's out of work and depressed, and his free spirit daughter. So they're all in the same physical place, you know, inhabiting the same space. So, for example, the father's narrative is uh, depicted with a, a, a winter background, and uh, his uh, and the, the little boy's narrative is depicted with spring as he plays with the other child and and you know gets out of his under mother's shadow a little bit cat lovers would certainly love melanie watts chester books <laughs> it's it's a it's a competition between the um author of the book and chester for who's going to control the narrative uh we're coming towards the end of our conversation and i wanted to finish with um a question about what you are reading right now and or watching on netflix because we're all in some ways sort of stuck at home and and uh um is there something you can tell us is on your kind of must read list or must watch list um well i have uh just finished reading aaron morgenstern's new book uh the starless sea which is one of those kind of books that you actually have to just kind of surrender yourself to um, you know, you really have to, to kind of, um, you know, just just uh, go with it. It's uh, beautiful, you know, fantastical, um, magic realist, um, fair, with fairy tale elements. It's it's a lovely escape actually from the pandemic world. Yeah. Um, I've, I'm in the middle of reading uh, Anne Applebaum's Twilight of Democracy, which is much more depressing. <laughs> Right yeah. now, um, and uh, and I, you know, back to my kind of current topic. I keep dipping into, um, you know, Brilliant Green uh, by Stefano Mancuso and Alessandra Viola. Um, it, the subtitles is Surprising History and Science of Plant Intelligence. Um, it's written for a kind of general audience, although it does have notes with, it's backed up by scholarship. Um, and uh, Mancusa has the rather fabulous uh, title uh, of Director of the International Laboratory of Plant Neurobiology. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> um, so uh, it, it, it's it's actually it's it's a it's a really uh, you know it's not a kind of thing that you have to read from beginning to end. Um, you know, there's a, a bit of an argument being presented, but uh, you can kind of dip in and out of chapters on on different topics, and I find it really helpful for making me uh, rethink my assumptions about the plant life around me and in my house even. I'm going to look at my uh, my basil plants and oregano plants out on the deck here in a, in a whole new light after our conversation. Um, thank you very much, Terry. That was really fascinating, and I'm looking forward to your presentation. Thanks, Theo. It was a pleasure to talk. You've been listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to Terry Doughty for joining me in conversation. 
Technical production by Robin Davies. Music by Greg Bush. Colloquium series will be back in October with Whitney Wood presenting Understanding Women's Pain in Canadian Medical History. For more information, visit our website by going to ah.viu.ca and clicking Colloquium Series. I'm Theo Finnegan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>